benvenuto a un altro episodio del Malguffin Podcast, il film di cui sono fatto Thank you, Richard. On this episode, I have nowhere to go after that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you had just like this this cold open. Planned, yeah, but no, no transition. This is I left you speechless. It was it was so much better than I thought it was going to be. On this episode, so romantic. We have our usual co-host Keith Foster from San Diego, California. That's right. I'm the co-host now. He's talking to you, Cassidy. We've replaced you. <laughs> <laughs> and also on this podcast, we have alumni Richard Wally from Salt Lake City, Utah. That is true. On this episode, this will be our final episode in our Director's Deep Cut series that we've been doing for October. We are discussing Dario Argento, the giallo Italian horror filmmaker. For the official review, we will be discussing Halloween Ends. But before we get into all of that, I did want to ask both of you, uh, what are you going to be doing? This weekend for Halloween. Do you have any plans? Do you have costumes? Keith is in costume half of the year for some convention or, or another. So maybe True. this is the time of the year. It's like in Big when Catwoman day. and Batman are dancing and they say, you know, I didn't feel like wearing costumes. It, it's funny because, um, yeah, I go all out for Comic-Cons. Um, normally the big one in July. And then usually for Halloween, I don't even think about a costume. It's just like, what did I do for Comic-Con this year? Like, I don't even try for Halloween, which is, you know, the one time of year that most people wear costumes. Not Maybe not I. I celebrate the old way. It's goats down below the cavern and we sacrifice them to the, the beings from underneath. So I don't know what the fuck you guys are talking about. Sounds like more of a Christmas thing to me, but sure. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> so that for you, Richard, this is a don't treat my culture like a costume kind of thing? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, no, uh, I have a kid, so I will be celebrating it the old-fashioned way, where you go and you eat too much candy until you throw up. Uh, the old ways. The old ways. The, the deep ways old of ways. the old gods. Yeah. I will not be dressing up. I do not believe in it. It's called that's being called uncomfortable for too long. It's wait. it's a good day when I put on actual like anything besides sweats. Wait, or really? basketball you shorts. You don't dress up for Halloween. <laughs> I don't need to. No, wait, wait, wait. We did. We did something together. You and I, Keith. It was technically for your birthday, but it was also to celebrate Halloween. What? We, we went to uh, Universal we went... Horror Nights. Yes, we did. I, I thought you were referring specifically to costumes. No, no, no. Yeah, uh, earlier this month, Richard visited me here in San Diego, and uh, we went up to Universal Studios and went to Halloween Horror Nights. So we kicked off the spooky season correctly. Um, there was a bunch of horror mazes. Uh, there was a weird secret bar designed by The Weeknd, the musical artist The Weeknd. Um, it was a good time. It was a very good time. We also, you know, walked past the tent cities to get to a real bar as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's a little speakeasy <laughs> near my house, but we had to walk through, like, literal skid row to get to it. It's, it, it's like, the most 
almost a joke, like the amount of homeless people we had to walk past to get to this secret bar. I mean, that's how you keep it a secret. So, you know, I mean, that's the trade off. You're not wrong. I have no plans. I will probably stay home and uh, watch uh, something Halloween-y. Um, like Clueless. No, that's more of a springtime kind of kind of movie. Uh, everything I've tried to watch, because I try to watch a horror movie every night during October. Um, and we're, we are successful in that this year. Yeah, uh, we're going to be ending with Twixt, A Field in England and um uh byzantium so i'm trying to go kind of like also classic gothic that kind of horror so we'll see all right yeah twix was the one that was the vampire movie that francis ford coppola did didn't right yeah i've not seen it so i haven't either that was Uh, like one of his later films yeah it was post tetro yeah it has a l fanning i believe for you Uh uh-huh that's all i know about it I've seen the cover. <laughs> Basically, me too. I always meant to see that and Park Chan Wook's Thirst because they came out, I think, around the same year. Okay. Um, I mean, that would be very Halloween-esque too. So I don't know in which which order, but I do know it's going to be one of those. All right. Dario Argento. We've talked He's- about before, you know, quote unquote, the Masters of Horror. They even had like a a series, I believe, that you could – you could rent or he did two episodes in it, yeah, yeah. Um, along with his his peers yeah, I think from, believe it was Showtime. Showtime back in the day, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's streaming um, anywhere, but but yeah, he's. I think he's best known. I think we'd agree it's Suspiria, right? Like yeah, I think probably most people know of him as the Suspiria guy or the Giallo guy. Uh, last year, we talked a little bit about Giallo in the context of Malignant because that movie took a lot of inspiration, not only from Dario Argento, but uh, his Italian peers as well and that style of filmmaking. Um, although it's- we've seen it kind of a lot, I would say, I don't know, in the last X amount of years. Um more and more people sort of taking influence from it. I remember back when Black Swan came out, a lot of people were like, this is just a Dario Argento movie being sold as an art film. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's it's kind of funny because we recently reviewed uh, Perfect Blue, the anime, which... Oh, I just watched that this year, so that's Oh, nice. I was going to bring that up. (laughs) Uh, and, And a lot of people accuse... Not necessarily cues, but a lot of people uh, talk about Black Swan kind of ripping parts from um, Perfect Blue. But I think Perfect Blue obviously was very influenced by Argento and and that sort of giallo horror. I mean, it's it's kind of fun watching these old giallo movies because you can see like the direct line to the modern slasher. Like you can see that the sort of evolution uh, into stuff like Friday the 13th. Well, right. and Giallo is like literally the the waypoint between um, between the slasher generation and, and like that, or, you know, what they call, you know, the beginning of the modern era with Hitchcock. So um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. essentially, and uh, I know, Richard, you've seen a lot more of these d- directors works. I'm really only familiar with Argento and Mario Bava, but 
Um, there were others uh, that were less famous or didn't cross over as well as those two directors. Um, I guess Fulci, uh, he's kind of more of a gore guy, but uh, and also made zombie films and stuff as well. But he would sort well, of be he in made that conversation. Name. He made his name in Giallo, but yeah, I would say his greater con- contributions are in like Zombie and mm-hmm. uh, Beyond and The Beyond and, um, you know, Demons, things like that. So, right, right. Uh, and he it- also did, I mean, he, he has a very, like within the Giallo world, if you look at um, who would, uh, don't torture, who would torture a duckling or don't torture a duckling, uh, that's probably one of the more probably one of his more famous like true giallo films though Mm -hmm. um and there is uh, and this this is um i mean this is a big point too is that there is a difference between um true giallo and like suspiria for example within giallo is is i just learned that like last year is that it's not actually considered a giallo film it's because it has atypical of the genre in some ways because there is more of a supernatural element to it. Yeah. Well, I, the, so, the, well, that is the thing is it's supernatural and that's what discredits it completely from being like, I, I think that's a little silly because it has like every other hallmark of a Giallo film except for a spooky hand. So um, I, um, I actually just watched um, Suspiria because I had not seen it in a very long time. And and yeah, so I was like, I, I especially uh, when I like kind of read about um, one of the movies that we're going to talk about a little more in depth with Inferno and how it's, you know, kind of a trilogy. I was like, I, I feel like I should go back and revisit Suspiria. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially when we're talking about Dario Argento and... There is a divided difference, I think, between his more sort of grounded Giallo stuff and Suspiria, which is, and Inferno too, to some extent, um, but we'll get into that a little later. Um, but it is, it's very fantastical. It's very, um, I mean, it has the same sort of story beats of like, you know, people getting murdered and sort of a larger mystery surrounding that. Um, but to me, I I don't know, just rewatching it, I was like, this is pretty different. Like just the way things unfold, it's, to me, it's a little more dreamlike. It's a little more, uh, dark fantasy than Giallo. And and I believe when, uh, he made that film, that was, he said one of his main influences was, uh, fairy tales like Snow White is he wanted to make it like a contemporary Snow White film. Um, I actually was like, this is probably the closest we're ever going to get to like a real sort of Bluebeard uh, fantasy movie. Because I don't know, there's something about it kind of reminded me of that story. Yeah. Even well, and this this would also be for I think for some people this would be a good uh, Halloween edition if you haven't seen it. So. Oh sure, I, I mean even more so than uh, the ones we one are. One of the most colorful movies ever <laughs> ever made. So okay. let's let's uh, turn moving? the clock back a little bit. I kind of just wanted to talk about how Giallo develops in sure. Italy. So right after, you know, we have crime films, we have, uh, you know, the American crime films, film noirs, murder mysteries of sorts, but usually focus more on the procedural aspect or the, if it's a horror film, like a gothic horror, it tends to be, uh, more castles and coffins and that kind of stuff. 
And after Psycho, or Hitchcock in general, but especially Psycho, we see sort of the decline of the American film noir. And a lot of those directors and those actors start to churn out more movies about psycho killers in the wake of Psycho because it was this huge low-budget success. So we start to see, you know, people like Robert Mitchum go from being the hunky detective guy to now being Cape Fear and Night of the Hunter. And then from there, we start to see, like, overt psycho ripoffs, movies like uh, Who Killed Baby Jane? And this trickles down into the B-movies and the exploitation films. And there's overt psycho ripoffs that come out through through the 60s, through, like, um, all of these exploitation chains. And this is then sort of adapted by Italy, uh, who's already making low-budget films um, in their specific style, and they just kind of took that and ran with it. That is really the birth, the Italian's take on Hitchcock meets maybe a little bit of sort of the uh, eroticism and the technicolor weirdness of like hammer films um yeah i can see that and then uh in general just sort of the operatic nature and the more vibes over plot elements of italian cinema at all yeah yeah well and 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 giallo do you know what giallo means it's like yellow right is the uh it translates as yellow yeah so yeah back in back in like the early turn of the century um, of the 20th century, um, all of their like dime novels, their crime, specifically dime novels, mm-hmm. all had like yellow wrappings. So that's where some of that. So specifically, that's where the yellow comes in. So um, are you going into Bava specifically or where are you? Jumping well, Bava is kind of kind of a uh, a connector between the two. Right. So. Even in other places in Europe, you have movies like uh, Diabolique was like trying mm-hmm. to out Hitchcock Hitchcock and uh, have this crazy murder mystery element to it, um, but also like be very shocking. Um, and then at the, in the same year as Psycho in England, you have Peeping Tom, which is in a, in a lot of ways very proto-Giallo. Um, even the POV stuff is very similar to what we see in a lot of Argento's work. The only difference there is you know exactly who the killer is from the beginning of the movie. <laughs> um, so there's well, not much of a mystery, yeah, but... I do, I do think that's an interesting thing. First of all, all of the movies are obsessed with uh, point of view and music and color. Yes. Um, but specifically, I think there's this interesting thing... Uh, especially with like the the like deep red, where it's sort of a murder mystery that is kind of impossible to figure out. Um, like Suspiria, I think all the clues are there, and it, it like kind of builds nicely to a satisfying conclusion. But kind of the rest of them, I think, kind of have like the sort of Scream Two and Scream Three endings, where it's like. All right, sure. I guess it could be that <laughs> that person could be the killer. In general, it has this kind of like murder mystery element to it, and there's usually some kind of personal connection 
Whereas, like, with slasher movies, that's not necessarily the case. It's, you know, there's less of that kind of moralizing aspect that got mm-hmm. kind of baked into the slasher movies, you know, in the late 80s and, and early 90s kind of thing. It seems like they kind of abandon the murder mystery quality of it, and it becomes more about, like, you know, punishing these teenagers kind of thing. Well, in the American slasher, uh, yeah. which is the American slasher's definitely sort of develops it's just as influenced by giallo uh you know so it's, it's interesting it's like hitchcock influenced giallo then giallo influences I, I think directly influences bob clark's black christmas which is like the first american slasher um or some people yeah. argue uh well, and a lot of the I would say also a lot of the 70s films, if we're talking toolbox murders, if we're talking, like you said, Black Christmas, if we're talking a yeah, lot of Yeah, even those, Halloween, yeah. to a even certain Halloween, extent. Even yeah. Halloween, yeah. Um, yeah. All of those films are very much influenced by, uh, you know, and set up for um, for yeah. the slasher, like, kind of, uh, to horror, to, to take over horror. So, I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's if a you conversation look at, like, back and from, forth between Europe and America. And I mean, the other person too we should talk about is De, um, De Palma. How much he's, oh, he's yes. influenced and does influence. Yeah, um, in fact, I've seen. A I lot mean, of if you people... watch, you could watch Carrie and Suspiria as a double feature, and it sure. would completely work. I've I've heard a lot of people actually, say yeah. that uh, um, Dress to Kill is, and it should be counted among like the top five Giallo films, whether it's made from an Italian. Uh, I. Uh, well, I guess De Palma is American-Italian, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Dress to Kill does have more, but I would say Blowout has just as many qualities as a Giallo film. Sure, and, and Sisters. And, and Sisters, well, yeah. It, yeah. It's kind of interesting how also horror... Like, one of the things I hear about, uh, uh, about peop- from people specifically who criticize horror is, like, I hear people say stuff like, well, I don't like horror, but I like thrillers. And it's kind of interesting the way horror does fraction because a lot of those, you know, movies that people describe as thrillers are also giallo influenced. They're just less less about the gore and more about kind of that mm-hmm. mystery and tension. A lot of people when Seven first came out, a lot of people said that it was uh, very giallo inspired because. It's more of a who do, has a murder mystery quality to it, has more of a procedural quality to it, but it's also heavily art directed and very because yeah. I think that's the big difference between the American thriller or even the American slasher um, to Giallo is um, when we did it like in the late 70s, like let's say post Texas Chainsaw on, uh, we kind of took the romance out of it. We kind of took the that ethereal, uh, otherworldly quality away from it and made it more gritty, quote unquote. Whereas De Palma, somebody like De Palma didn't do that. He kept the, his movies gauzy and weird and dreamlike, partly because he's just as inspired by Hitchcock as 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 they all were. And he understands well, it, that it's a weird, you know, Vertigo well, works because of the way it looks and feels and the the Technicolor and all of that. Well, and it's a weird conversation, like like I mean, film conversation between all these people. Because I mean, also 
we're talking about Hitchcock, but Hitchcock makes frenzy like a lot of the, you know, your deep reds and your, um, your Martino films and like these different Giallo directors. So you said deep red, let's, let's talk about it. Let's put the theory into practice. Um, I know this is not like his first film. I think what the bird with the crystal plumage and stuff kind of came before this and, that is the first one. Uh, Deep Reds, I would say, in his like film or whatever you want to call it, it's definitely one of his fan favorites. Yeah. In Giallo, how they talk about it is the Giallos and there's Giallis. So Giallos is the masculine. So if it has a male counterpart, they're usually a detective, a jur- actually usually a journalist of some sort or some mm. kind of artist. Um, whereas the Gialli are usually female led. So those are kind of how they they kind of break these ones up. As far as Deep Red goes, yeah, it's kind of it becomes kind of the staple of what it, it, it it's interesting because it ends the height of what Giallo is at that point. Really, uh, this film kind of gets made, and the other and a lot of the other Giallo you know Giallo films it starts to slow down as a genre in Italy. Um, but it does, it has all of the classical, you know, it has dolls, <laughs> weird appearances in it, it has these little cutscenes. it has, it has spooky. all the formula. It has spooky children's drawings. Very important. Spooky yeah. children's drawings. Well, has, I just mean like this, this movie, you can see the, the deep red to like kind of any modern horror pipeline, right? Like that fucking sure. dummy there's a scene in this movie where this like scary ass dummy like comes out of the darkness and and uh you know it's in this it's just kind of like a misdirect for one of the victims um but i was just like oh jesus christ am i watching a saw movie like <laughs> like the imagery is so vivid and so horrific that well, i can see see how like visually this <laughs> like rotted the brains of a bunch of young American filmmakers. Well, yeah. And, and I mean, you're, you're again, going back to um, influence, whatever his name is, the did malignant and all that. Like, yeah, James he definitely Bond. is influenced yeah. by these type of films. Um, yeah. This I mean, one, this one, look at, look at the, I, uh, the root in Suspiria, the room full of barbed wire that, that, right. they, that is a hundred percent where like saw got all of its ideas. Right, like yeah. that. Those those mm-hmm. type of weird concepts. He's I could I could escape, but if I do, it's going to mean my certain death or a more uncomfortable death. Yeah. And and so uh, you've got so this one Argento very much loves to plays do that into kind of the stuff. yeah. And, and this, I mean, that's that's the thing is is this becomes kind of the typifier, and it kind of ends the height of that period. Um, it's kind of what I think is kind of interesting about this one versus a lot. This is like. Probably uh, Argento's least slick. Um, um, I mean, Giallo it's film. still it's still got like. But if you compare it to his like like you compare it to Bird of the Crystal Plumage, Four Flies on Gray Velvet, you, you like the three predecessors. Well, I haven't to it. seen those, so I can't. <laughs> well, I know, and that's why I'm stepping in. Uh, <laughs> but what I'm saying is, is it has almost it almost has its own conversation. It's having. Because, you know, those films are being released pre 
like something like a Texas Chainsaw, some of the dirty, like sure. other dirty kind of horror that's coming out of the United States. He sees those and he mixes the two in a very kind of, uh, the, I, I don't know I, why that's interesting to me, but no, it has I, I think, more of yeah. a, this one has a lot more of a grit to it than, um, than maybe any of his other geologists. Well, in, in particular, the, the kills are very brutal. I mean, it, it has very distinct, sort of murder sequences mm-hmm. and i i think what's interesting about this though and and again i don't know if this is typical of all giallo um but something i've noticed with all of argento's works that i've seen uh it still has this like vague connection to this sort of supernatural world right like you know the, there's one of the characters is a psychic and hmm. there's there's still this kind of spirituality to this movie uh, that I think separates it a little bit from, you know, and, and maybe that's where some of like the weird supernatural stuff comes from in some of the like mid tier oh. slasher movies. But but I, I just think it's interesting that there is this otherworldliness to his work. Well, a lot of Giallo in general do have like this kind of started in the 60s with Bava and some of the other contemporaries. But there is more of a, a, you know, he's much more interested in like this is where dream logic kind of like really like it takes hold and stuff like that. I will say Argento in general leans more into horror because there is kind of like a like. What's interesting, if you watch like the uh, Don't Torture, Would You Torture a Duckling or Don't Torture a Duckling, um, which is Fulci's, it is very, very realistic. Like what I mean is it's very like low key. And if you watch that versus his later films, like so it, it's interesting because I feel like Argento leans into the horror uh, much more than any of his other contemporaries. Um, you know, I really like Martino. Uh, Sergio Martino leans, I, I would say it leans more into the expectation than he does the, um, than he does just the, th- than some of his other contemporaries. Right. But yeah, so it's, it's, it's kind of this weird in between world, you know, like Cassidy was saying, between noir and horror and mystery and thriller. And it's kind of this kind of bridge that, um, I would say in mainstream cinema, maybe not recently, but, but for a while was very much ignored. But uh, Deep Red, I would say, is his most... Because the other few films before that are a little bit more slick. It's still got your black gloves and your blades coming out and all of that. But it's it, uh, they are almost a little bit more visual. There's not as much, you know, rotting skeletons and cobwebs and all that kind of stuff that you get with Deep Red. So Yeah, I would say, I would say that's three... maybe one of the bigger distinguishers i'd say of the three deep cuts we're we're covering in in this episode uh for people who have never seen any of his movies even above suspiria even though that's the one that's more well known um Mm -hmm. i would say to start here if you're like a young american because this has the least otherworldliness the least surreality to it and i think you even if some of the, like, you know, the fact that all the ADR is done later and, you know, certain things are going to be uh, a bit of a obstruction for people um, who don't watch Italian films of this time period. 
But Fair enough. Uh, I think this the procedural elements here and and generally it's the most well plotted of of these. It's the most story driven as opposed to um the later films which are much more about the the feel than necessarily the plot. Yeah, this one would be good. So would Bur- the uh, Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Um, mm-hmm. it, if you're not such a big horror person, I would maybe go to the uh, the Bird with the Crystal Plumage just because it's a little bit more thriller driven. And- yeah, and I, I mean, I haven't seen Bird with the Crystal Plumage, but I d- like in kind of just like this movie kind of revels in its violence. Like the the kills are very drawn out they're very mean they're (laughs) like it just it has that slasher quality to it you know Mm -hmm. like there's people getting carved up with a butcher knife there's there's something that he does here that i that he's he's so good at and um i think it's one of the things he's better at than other things is he's so great at designing a set piece he's so great at editing you know, okay, it's not just a kill sequence, not just, you know, it's always elaborate. It's always mm-hmm. sort of a Rube Goldberg kind of process of how this person's going to get mutilated. Um, well, and it's and always he, he, very entertaining and fascinating to watch. There's a strange artful beauty to the way he kills people that they right. don't quite, they don't quite manage. Well, as, with, you know, they don't, they, it, it doesn't come out in the American uh, slasher commodification later on. What, what's <laughs> interesting, it, I think this is typical of all the movies of his that I, I watched. The the kill scenes kind of speak to what you were saying, Cassidy. Like, they're always set up in this way that you can, you can sort of see it unfolding before it happens. Like all of the elements are introduced in these in this way that's like oh fuck I you know I know that's gonna come back to bite them like well and right. it's something you can't stop it's something that goes in motion like through yeah the and I and I think and, and because I think, of his his directorial presence even when something is a super gruesome or you know and there's a few times while watching all these movies I I had to watch it through the slits of my fingers. Which is something for, you know, an older exploitation movie from the 70s. Because his directorial presence is so front and center and everything, I never, I feel like that leaves enough um, visceral distance that it doesn't become unpleasant to watch. Like, I actually enjoy seeing how these, these set pieces churn out, like how they go from thing to thing to thing. And that's another thing, because we're talking about like something that really sets these up. And as somebody who's usually not uh, one to um, uh, figure out what they're doing with music in a film, these are films that very much use music to kind of lead you through. Oops. But it's not. Mm-hmm. But it, it it they're cued, but it's not like but it doesn't make you go, oh, this is what's going to happen. It makes you go, oh, no, this is going to happen. Well, and so he- I. He also uses music to be purposely jarring. Like, you know, there will be music playing and then it will suddenly cut out. And then, you know what I mean? Like in Suspiria, that that fucking amazing Goblin soundtrack uh, mm-hmm. always sort of is a clue that something strange is about to happen. But for some reason, it seems like only the main character can hear it. Like, 
he does that kind of thing a lot in in his movies where it's like this sort of audio focus mm-hmm. in in a way that I think maybe even the technology wasn't ready for because there there's no like fade ins or fade outs or anything like it's just like music 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 cut to dead silence um you talked about it being very point of view driven so i mean is this the internal like you know song of these people mm-hmm. like it, it, it is yeah like it is it is an interesting through line and it is almost it's own, like the music in a lot of his films are almost their own characters i would oh, say yeah. they're very much as is the lighting as is the art direction and that's what I meant by the romance of of his work. It's never just a setting. It's never just uh, a piece of score to keep you you know keep things moving along. Um, everything's extremely intentional. I th- I think less so in this movie mm-hmm. than something like Suspiria or Inferno, um, where it becomes like so art driven. To the point of almost abstraction, um, this this one is trying, I think, to be a little more grounded, grounded but yeah. it still, yeah, has those like impeccably framed shots and uh, gorgeous lighting the way the and camera yeah. Works. yeah. Well, Keith, since you brought it up, go ahead and give us your your impressions of Inferno, which is something of a spiritual sequel to to Suspiria, but not a direct sequel. Uh, it's a, a thematic sequel, but not a story, not a narrative sequel. Yeah, yeah, it feels like it's cut from the same world. Like it's it's dealing in witches and witchcraft and the supernatural again. And it's it's you can definitely tell that it was made after Suspiria because it has that extra level of intense um, dream well, and, and- dream logic to it. But but go ahead. And um, uh, bisexual lighting everywhere. <laughs> the <laughs> like, blues and reds. Like every mm. scene. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, Inferno is, it, it's about this girl <laughs> in America who is investigating these buildings which were built for uh, these witches known as the Three Mothers. And while she's like looking into them, her brother, who is a uh, uh, studying music abroad, um, and his friend, girlfriend, Snoopy classmate gets involved uh, <laughs> in sort of this mystery behind these these buildings that were built for witches, essentially. Narratively, I think this was probably his hardest to follow yeah of of I'd, all of the ones we watched i'd uh, say it's the least concerned with narrative of the ones we watched yeah i got a lot of uh david lynch vibes from this one honestly like there's a sure. lot of a lot of that sort of dream logic a lot of like dream imagery There there's sequences that happen that end up to just be dreams and, and things of that nature. Um, yeah, this one's a little less tangible, a little more, like you said, with uh, with like the spiritual successor to Suspiria, like it takes all the kind of otherworldly elements to Suspiria, but cranks them up a notch. Mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking about Lynch when I watched this one specifically. I thought about Blue Velvet. I thought about... 
Lost Highway. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, th- there there is a certain dr- I mean, because it jumps from like continent to continent, it jumps from, you know, storyline to storyline. Like with Sperio, you get one POV. This mm-hmm. it jumps around a little bit, which maybe is like intentional, like him being like this. This is how a typical Argento film goes. This is what I'm going to do with this. Uh, maybe it's to ch- kind of like shake up kind of his own formula, which the Giallo genre in general is very formulaic. Um, I feel like this one doesn't feel like a, a Giallo. Like it, it still has, you know, kind of similar story beats in that, you know, it has these sort of young people investigating this thing and there there's murders that occur. But the murders, like the deaths seem a little more, less tangible. They seem less connected. It doesn't sort of feel like it's, you know, well, building to this. Well, if you get a scratch in this film, you're fucked. yes that's true don't Uh, don't get caught on a doorknob you're gonna be dead um (laughs) it's got the weird wind and it's got the the color lighting and it 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 definitely continues it i it is a little like messy and and i will say that it helped on a repeat viewing for me um see the first time i watched it i was like what is this what's happening why is she swimming What's going on here? <laughs> like, I, I think but. in general, I, I mean, especially these sort of early Italian tend to be maybe a little long in the edit. Uh, I definitely felt that with Deep Red. Um, I felt that less with this. I don't know. I was so sort of enamored with the, just the strangeness of it. It's just that, the bisexual lighting. <laughs> I, I mean... That didn't hurt, like... <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sorry, I was just being... It's just sort of the whole movie has this kind of otherworldly presence, the, the same way that Suspiria does, that, that Deep Red didn't have, right? Like, Deep Red, I can see, is like the proto-slasher, for sure. Or, you know, one of the proto-slashers. This, I feel like, is sort of proto-other horror, I will say what's a little interesting about uh, Suspiria and Inferno and just its general time period is Argento starts to produce. And uh, during this time period, he produces uh, Dawn of the Dead. Um, And so he was also. Yeah. So if you think about some of the color palette from Dawn of the Dead as well, you're you're, you're also seeing some similar uh, color techniques kind of happening and some, mm-hmm. um, I believe he's also credited as a, uh, story writer for, uh, right. Sergio Leone's, um, uh, once upon a time in the West. Well, and, and I mean, his also, besides that, if we're also talking about like his lineage, Argento also, his dad was a producer mm-hmm. and that's how he kind of got into film. So, uh, he started directing so early in his life. Uh, he right. also, you know, he went to film school. Uh, uh, he specifically, he he studied a lot of uh, film theory. But again, I th- I think that's kind of disconnects it from that slasher world that later on became this like moralizing, punish the youth. These movies feel very like like these people that just kind of get wrapped up into a world they don't understand. Well, yeah, I, it, it, it feels more like. Like it sets up kind of like a campfire tale or or a uh, fairy tale where the protagonist is more meant to be a cipher for the viewer as opposed to, you know, these group of 
uh, teenagers who deserve to be slaughtered for any number of reasons. Yeah, yeah. I I think, again, this this one feels very much of that sort of like dark fairy tale kind of, you know, like, don't go snooping around the witches. Like, that's what you're being punished for, not being sexually liberated. You know, it's it's. Well, and they, almost... they were meddling with these sort of powers they don't understand and where the sort of cosmic punishment comes from. Well, that is, oh, you use that word. Uh, that's something that kind of this viewing brought up was, I don't know if that's intentional or not, but there does seem to be a cosmic kind of sense in this one. And I do use that horror genre typifier. Well, yeah. yeah like, I, there, it, there seems to be something that's brewing and coming after them. And it it it's it interesting because I wouldn't necessarily. Well, and it also do, it seems bigger. Yeah. It, it, it It's not just a, a slasher because. Powers, powers beyond. And, and not so much like a witch, like, you know, there's somebody in the woods and they're going to get you, that kind of thing. Like, like there seems to be something, eth- you know, in the ether. In this, in specifically his more uh, supernatural films, but. of of all the movies we watched, this was my personal favorite for all of these reasons. I just uh, there uh, it, it, there was something so there it, to me there was just something magical and otherworldly, and it, it, it's kind of, yeah all these things we're talking about dark fairy tale cosmic. Uh, it, it has slasher elements, but it just sort of feels bigger than that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. So we jump now to 1987 with the film Opera. I've also heard it called Terror at the Opera. Uh, And we talked a lot about um, his use of score and music. I think this this one more so than the others. The music, you know, is both diegetic and non-diegetic, but almost kind of both at the same time. Because it takes place in an opera house, it's there's a bit of a Phantom of the Opera quality to to the plotting here, uh, but it it deals in a lot of the same um, whodunit mystery elements from Deep Red, and also sort of that otherworldliness as well. But yeah, I, I I think in a lot of ways this is this is sort of his ultimate statement. This is almost a meta narrative. I felt like maybe it's because it's later in his work and. You know, by this point, he's certainly had seen how influential he's been to American filmmakers. A, l- a lot of his films deal with people in the arts. So they're either musicians or piano players or singers or dancers. Uh, in the case of Suspiria, she's a ballerina. Here, it all takes place in an art uh, environment. And in a way, I feel like he's... He's kind of overtly saying, yes, I am designing these murder set pieces like music. This is how you should be watching my films. Yeah, I can see that. It, 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 yeah, it's like there's these movements towards it. It's yeah, uh, there, there's reoccurring themes. There's um, there's variations on a theme like I, I think that's a fair way to read this movie specifically is is sort of a musical composition of of horror and gore. I also, uh, funny enough, I also got a lot of perfect blue from this one. Um, right, and maybe it's just because story wise, you know, it's about this young girl who uh, she's this understudy 
for this this opera of Macbeth, and so she gets sort of drawn into this world that she d- isn't sure she's prepared for, and then has to deal with: is it an obsessed fan? It, you know, is it uh, uh, mm-hmm. this stalker cl- clearly has some kind of personal investment uh, in her specific torture? Uh, it, it, and it, I think that's an element of this movie specifically that I that I found very interesting was this was went a little even beyond sort of the the proto slasher. And well, this, now I we're post. Like, oh, this is kind of. I think this is post. This slasher. is kind of the proto uh, torture porn <laughs> because a lot of it is is very much like lingering on. This, you know, these mutilations and specifically the psychological torture of one character. So this is kind of like so if we're talking about his his career and also kind of just Giallo as this is kind of the swan song, right? <laughs> like like pun quite completely literally intended. To, <laughs> yeah. I, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In both senses of the word. Right. But this is something I besides like you were talking about the the music, like I'm just a sucker for that. Like you've got this classically composed and then it breaks into this like, you know, it is metal of that era, but it works so well for me. Right. Um, the, the, the first time I saw this, theme it just, has like a has like a speed metal kind of <laughs> thing going on. It just yeah, no, it just yeah. it, it played to, it played on my heartstrings. Um <laughs> But something that I really like about this film um, as well as a lot of the because um, we're talking about Phantom of the Opera, where, which it obviously takes cues from the musical that ran for 30 years. It's actually ending this year. The Broadway musical. Oh, the Andrew Lloyd uh, Webber musical. Yeah. 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 Oh, that one is that one is officially ending this year. It kind of draws from that that gothic world of the book phantom of the opera but it mm. also kind of draws from the fan you know the gothic world of edgar Allan poe's quote the raven nevermore mm-hmm. and um but it uses it in a geol like i think this is one of the most um like of like this uses all of the different tools and all of his different tools it's the crescendo to his oh, career yeah. and i don't I, mean- I don't i don't mean to be so like metaphorical and all that it is, you know, and it also kind of draws going to the Italian thing. It draws from Fellini. It comes from the art world. It, you know, it, it's about artists. It, it's about the big show. So I, I find this film interesting from a film standpoint, from a horror standpoint, and just like and from like a gothic standpoint, like gothic kind of visions and and literature and um, illusions like it. it, it it does. It takes everything that he's interested in and puts it into one thing. Totally, yeah. Well, it, it also uh, along with that, ran, just random observations about uh, Dario Argento. Uh, he has a few obsessions that keep coming up through all of his movies. Um, I already mentioned one as you know, kind of this POV shot, uh, specifically from the killers. Yeah, um, I, I think. That's oftentimes kind of just like, you know, a clever way to sort of hide their identity. But I do think there's something interesting about that. Uh, He has obsession with music. He has specifically an obsession with eyes. Mm -hmm. Um, There's just a lot. And this kind of goes back, I think, to that POV thing 
Uh, there's just a lot of shots of singular eyes. And this one, it's very distinct with like those crow's eyes. And, um, you know, it kind of flips to see their point of view. Um, he also has a very specific obsession with lizards. I don't know if you guys caught that. <laughs> yeah, I did. Did you notice that there was a lizard in every single one of these movies? Well, maybe they're just very mm-hmm. common in Italy. I don't I I don't know the whole lizard deal, but I think there's a lot of animals in his movies in general. I think there's this well, connection back to the natural that is lizards. Well, I don't know about him lizards specifically, but if we are talking about giallo as a, as a larger genre, there, there, uh, there are lots of animal titles, and animals are a part of it. Uh, are kind of baked into a lot of the titles, and it mm-hmm. is part of, I guess you would say, the art scene that was happening in the Giallo world. Sure, uh, yeah. Well, I'm trying to think, like I, I you know, know, in other Italian uh, contexts, whether it be the spaghetti western or the art films, like the art house films. Um, if there's anything quite as overt as that. And I think there's some stuff in the spaghetti Westerns, but I don't, I don't remember like the use of animals being as persistent and as um, metaphorical. I mean, I guess like Umberto D, you know, there's a dog, but <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, I yeah. mean, it, it, it's especially like these little green lizards mm-hmm. that it is, in one movie is like, you know, kind of an interesting shot, but like in all of his movies, there was just something weird about it. Like in this one, there's a lizard that's like pinned under a branch that she, you know, she like lifts the twig off of and sets it free. You know, the branch, you know, being like the metaphor of like this dark past, this dark secret haunting her mm-hmm. uh, in deep red. There was the girl who fucking tortured lizards in I can't remember if it was Inferno or Suspiria, but there's just like a random shot of like a lizard kind of exploding. Just really weird to me. Well, we already know that he's he's not shy about referencing his own work. And, and oftentimes his movies sort of refer back to themes or motifs. So I think it well, might just be, talks- you know, sprinkled well, that's in what there. I was talking about is he also talks with other people within his genre. Martino has a lot of animal names. He has a lot of animal names in his early work. I, I don't know what it is specifically, but it is a known factor. I don't know specifically with Argento what the lizard deal is, but I, but I it might not be anything more than that. I just thought it was it was just a random, interesting observation because it's just this image that keeps appearing. It kind of again like the just the singular shot of an eye and. Uh, mm-hmm. Just to get back to opera, um, I, I think that was also very clear and very interesting in this. Like, you know, you have the shot of her with the, the needles under her eyes, so she can't close her eyes. There's the, the one scene with, the like, the peephole and the door, which was very, mm-hmm. uh, which was really cool, uh, really well done. Uh, uh, again, I, I think... You know, it's more about just sort of perspective than anything else. I, I, it's just maybe it's just a cool gothic image, you know, to keep sort of drawing back to. I mean, um, it might be. I mean, it might be hearkening back to the eye shot in um, 
in Psycho, so maybe yeah. that's part of it. I'm and not the sure. people shot in Psycho. Yeah, that could be. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I mean that movie, you know, basically is the godfather of all slasher films. <laughs> you know, or if not all, you know, modern horror. You look at that lineage, Psycho, to something like um, where there's definitely in, in a lot of Hitchcock's movies, not just Psycho, but especially Psycho, there's a lot of stuff to do with POV. There's a lot of stuff to do with identity. You know, the way he uses the uh, uh, subjective camera. And then you see um, Michael Powell take that very literally in Peeping Tom, where the killer has a camera that he uses as a weapon so that the his victims are forced to watch their own death as he films it. No, and then to no. Dario Argento, where he's forcing his victim to watch murders because he's not actually has any plans to kill her. She's just there to be a forced voyeur of his murders. So in a way, I feel like, again, it's sort of metatextual. It's like, we're the, we're her in the audience. We're watching this. Yeah. The, just the shot of her with those needles under her eyelid, like you could pull that as a still frame and tell somebody it was a, from a Saw movie and they wouldn't bat an eye, you know? And that with, like, also, like, the dummy from Deep Red. Like, it, it's just, I don't know, interesting to me to see how the the echoes of Argento are still being seen in American horror. Mm-hmm. But the way we normally sort of finish out these discussions is um, just to, to state, you know, which one is your personal favorite? I, I guess, Keith, you said of the ones we watched for this, you liked uh, Inferno the most. I don't know what you've seen outside of these three films, but would you say that Inferno is your favorite of these three or uh, uh, of everything you've seen? I, I mean, I would say it's kind of between that and probably Suspiria. Um, and... I, I think Suspiria maybe gets the edge just for the fucking Goblin soundtrack alone. It is just one of the most unique, uh, I think, of all time. If you've never heard uh, Goblin's soundtrack, the, the band was called Goblin. They did the soundtrack for Suspiria. Just go listen to it. It is, it, it's so otherworldly that it still sounds contemporary in a way kind of like, you know, almost like how John Carpenter's score for Halloween is sort of ageless. It just is so... Whereas, you know, some of these other stuff, they got, like, like Deep Red later on has some of that, like, 70s detective bass. I was all on. about that. I had... Oh, it was... The, I mean, I'm not complaining. I had um, the, uh, the, the head-bobbing cat gif playing in my head all throughout that movie. <laughs> <laughs> um you, you know opera is obviously very operatic and has that weird like like <laughs> hair metal kind of killer riff uh yeah, yeah. but i i don't know there's just something about suspiria and i think it pairs very nicely with inferno so i i think that's a a, a very nice combo there okay, i like the opera a lot too except uh i wasn't crazy about the ending I feel you on that. What about you, Richard? What it, You've seen way more than us. What's your favorite Argento film? It depends on the day, but uh, Suspiria, I'm always a sucker for the, you know, 
the classic, but also it kind of depends on the time period of his first three films, uh, bird of the crystal plumage, um, Suspiria's up there for just like fun kookiness sake, uh, phenomena, but opera probably is my favorite. I just feel like all the tools come into play. I like the weird Gothic kind of thing that's happening. The ending to me is just, if you're familiar with the larger Giallo world in general, it, that is very, very like there are some of those films that have some crazy, like drawn out Lord of the Rings endings. <laughs> so uh, I thought you would appreciate that being so into Lord of the Rings, Keith. Uh, here, okay. <laughs> I'm just to go back I'm, to tease, complete no, tease. No, <laughs> I, I honestly, I probably was with you with, I, I, probably was with you with opera being my favorite but the ending kind of kills it for me because it's just so such a tonal shift it, it just felt like a different movie even and it does kind of follow that tradition of like oh the the killer's got to come back for one last scare kind of thing it, it feels very much like of that there's actually a really similar ending a fake out ending like that in uh uh, Red Dragon, where I wonder who took mm, from who on that, because the book would have been written before opera came out, but mm -hmm. Michael Mann's film didn't go with that ending, uh, but the later Brett Ratner remake did. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he could just be pulling in from a trope. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> for me, my favorite of what I've seen from him is opera. Um, funnily enough, I'd actually say now that I've seen more of his work, Suspiria is probably my least favorite, although not saying that I don't like Suspiria, I like it a lot, but I think in some ways the dark fairy tale thing is a, I feel just a little bit more matured or saturated in Inferno and I kind of prefer it less literal in that movie, uh, but I think opera just is such an interesting movie in terms of him kind of commenting on his own stuff. And, yeah. and, um, some like, it's a little less showy in some regards because it doesn't have all mm -hmm. the crazy lighting and, you know, it isn't as supernatural and whatever, but some of the transitions and the editing in that film is perfection. Yeah. Um, well, even also, like, the, like, like the scene, just, like randomly walking in the rain, like right. the way that they, they did that was just kind of the, it's weird because that film is a more realistic murder thriller, but they do have these out of bot, like they do discombobulate you with that and kind of show from her point of view what's happening. It, I, it does in most film, not even just horror, just in most film, they don't. Yeah. Go that far. It, it does. I I will say opera does kind of just feel like a director sort of at the height of his power. You know, like it, everything he's sort of learned along the way comes yeah. to make this. I, I get what you guys are saying. I don't know. It's like he put everything together. Also, I'm I'm going to be honest. The first time I saw it, I was just a real sucker for the for the, the switch between opera, like, you know, a typical score and like some thrash metal. So no, it, it, the, right. the music, all, it has a better flow in this than some like deep red. I remember some of the music like transitions are pretty jarring. Um, it, it, it's kind of the same in Suspiria, but I think it's a little more intentional. Uh, I also, this was the last one I watched. 
And I'm not going to lie, I thought Deep Red was a little too long. In general, all of his movies could use a tighter edit. But I, I don't think... I have no problem with how the movies shake out ultimately. And I, I know what he's what he's good at and what he's trying to get to and the feeling that he's trying to create. So I kind of go with it a little bit more. Um, I, I'm just saying... But yeah, I would say in general, it, his run times are... I just um, feel that uh, watching them in sort of order, you can just see as, you know, as movies get a little more modern, they get a little tighter, they get a little more, you know, they just feel a little less dated. And I, I will say that about opera, like maybe the most accessible of all the ones we're talking about, like I, I think it has all of those, you know, uh, uh, load-bearing walls of Argento but it has I, I, just a little bit more of a modern sensibility to it. One one to check out, I would say, just just for you specific, you two specifically. Now that you, like you've kind of branched out into stuff a little bit, is go back to the Bird with the Crystal Plumage because it kind of sets the ground for a lot of what modern thrillers are to me. The remake of Suspiria, it's not a straight remake, and I believe it is very very good. I've, That's I've, what I've heard. I've meant to watch I'm, it. Um, in fact, I might uh, within the week uh, try and watch it because I, I still haven't. Um, I was going to see it when it was do in it theaters. And check back in. I really like that director a whole lot, uh, Luca Guardino. Um, he 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 takes what Argento's doing and just really. I mean, it's interesting because he almost does what, like, we've been talking about Argento being part of, like, film conversation. So he lo looks at Argento, but then he also is taking a lot from, I would say, a lot of the modern, like, art horror. And kind of, he really, I feel like, does his own thing. What's up, listeners? Force 5 is a show about movie-related top five lists. Hosted by me, Blacklist screenwriter and ex-video store cinephile Jason Kleberg. I have a new guest on each week, and the guest gets to pick the topic. Past guests have included film directors, screenwriters, actors, critics, comedians, rappers, artists, and other podcasters. Love or hate our picks, you're guaranteed to walk away thinking, what would be on my list? Search Force 5 wherever you get your pods or head to force5podcast.com. All right, let's go ahead and start talking now about Halloween Ends. Halloween Ends currently in theaters and streaming on Peacock. So Halloween ends the ending of the the modern Halloween trilogy by uh, David Gordon Green and Danny McBride. This one shifts gears a little bit. It is uh, it starts with this character named Corey who is babysitting uh, a kid on Halloween night. It's set up that, you know, the parents go away. Uh, they, they talk about the killings from Michael Myers. Um, he's still on the loose. It's sort of set up like a Michael Myers kill scene. And the kid, uh, you know, starts playing these pranks on his babysitter, which leads to the accident, which causes death of the child. Um, so then we, you know, sort of flash forward to a little bit later and uh, a couple years later and Corey is struggling to sort of fit in, uh, in Haddonfield as a known 
child murderer. Um, child manslaughterer. Uh, but I don't know why it made me child manslaughterer. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he he's tr- struggling to sort of fit in because everybody kind of knows some level of what happened. And in the meantime, you also have uh, Laurie Strode from the previous two movies, whose uh, entire family has been slaughtered at this point, except for her granddaughter, Allison. Uh, And they have... uh, Michael Myers hasn't been seen since Halloween Kills, since the incidents of a few years ago. So her and Allison are trying to move on uh, and and live a life beyond Michael Myers. Uh, we see Laurie for the first time trying not just to survive, but to live. Uh, gone are the traps and the the armaments of her home, and she's, she's trying to live a, a more domestic life with her granddaughter. Her granddaughter gets entangled with Corey, and people start to die and uh and and cory descends uh, down a darker path uh through a connection to michael myers and mm-hmm. it's it's very interesting this movie one because halloween uh 2018 and halloween kills in the timeline one starts where the where the other ends and this has quite a big like couple year break between the two. So there's it doesn't have that same sort of like transition from one to the other momentum. We we are now sort of in like a like an epilogue phase to the the killings of that night. And then two, we have this whole new character brought in who's almost more the protagonist, I say definitely more the protagonist than even Lori and her family and the amount of strong opinions online by this direction of the story is uh, pretty staggering. Um, there's a funny meme going around. I don't know if anyone's seen it, but this like alternate movie poster where it's like the story of Corey, how one man uh, survives, uh, gets revenge on high school bullies or something like that. Did the Corey thing throw you? While I was watching it, I was like, oh, okay, this is kind of interesting. And then I was kind of at a point like, what is happening? And then something clicked with me where I didn't have a problem with it at all. And I, I want to see if anyone else caught it. But go ahead. So I I kind of knew some level. Like, I didn't have the movie spoiled for me or anything, but I was kind of prepared for it to be a bit of a shift from the prior two installments um so i i I feel like i was a little more i was kind of watching for something weird you know what i mean I, i was like okay this is gonna this is gonna be a shift i think this movie is kind of an interesting mess (laughs) um but i don't necessarily hate that uh, I, I need to know how people felt about the last one. You know, before we give away everything here, I actually prefer this to Halloween Kills. I, of the three, I think the Halloween 2018 is the best, um, or at yeah. least the most does what it says on the tin. Um, I, I think that, I mean, the 2018 one is, st- is my second favorite Halloween movie. 
next to the original. I really liked the the 2018 one. Halloween Kills, I have issues with it, but I didn't dislike it. So to me, I I think David Gordon Green and Danny McBride are are were specifically trying to uh, tap into that something thematically that some of the less good Halloween sequels did with you know sort of like this nature of evil and the transference of evil. Uh, I don't think they were necessarily one hundred percent successful with that. Um, I do think Halloween Kills is kind of also an interesting mess. Uh, but overall, I I I liked it more than Cassidy. I liked it more than I, I didn't. Yeah. Okay, I, I, so... The thing with Halloween Kills that I appreciated is the idea that the whole town uh, becomes it, – it almost becomes kind of like a Frankenstein, you know – uh, people with with uh, torches and pitchforks after Michael Myers, and then it's the town versus Michael Myers. I I liked that aspect of it, but I thought that the movie took too long to get to that point, and it was a lot of people yelling in a hospital. But what was your take on kills? Okay, so kills for me is um, thematically it works. Uh, whatever. <laughs> okay, it's very confusing for me because I watched two thousand eighteen. And I said, wow, look at the setups in this. Look, that's pretty cool. And it's 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 strange. It's like so there's a scene with the doctor, the psycho, you know, the psychiatrist, psychologist, whatever he is in that uh, mm. first film. And it's like they're like, well, look how fucking weird and how unnecessary and how just kind of hammy this performance is. Let's make a whole film that looks like that, but has really great ideas. Um, so that was Halloween Kills for me. Uh, I, I and and why it why it matters is because I did not see Halloween Kills until right before I saw Halloween Ends. Oh, and so I was yeah, I a, was it's a weird it, transition. I wanted to. I just did had not seen it. It just didn't happen sure, yeah, yeah. for me. Um so Kills was a strange journey. So uh, yeah, the the just the performances and how things were captured and stuff like that. Like I get completely what they were going for in kills. You know, you've got, you know, Michael Myers is almost more of a, um, spree killer. than he is like, you know, a serial killer in that one. He well, kills he, multiple people yeah. in one shot. It's, it's, it, it just goes a little bit above and beyond. Whereas ends has some, in, like, it almost reminds me of watching Christine. Yes. Um, that was it. That was the moment when I was like, oh, I get it. This is Christine. Just replace yeah. Evil Carr with Michael Myers. And that's exactly what this movie is. And I, well, yeah, I mean, they even they even make the kid look like the kid from Christine. There, there's even a, like a junkyard scene that feels well, very he works like, in a junkyard. Yeah. Just like Christine. Um, well, I. And I almost wonder if, you know, maybe Halloween Kills is also referencing other Carpenter uh, as well. But the the thing that specifically bothered me about Halloween Kills that that I just did not like was versus 2018 was in 2018. You have all these characters that are actually like smart and capable and 
And to me, that leads for more interesting sequences. In Halloween Kills, you literally had people, they like curved into every trope. Whereas Halloween Halloween 2018, they rejected all the tropes, right? In Halloween Kills, it was, no, let's split up and go into this house where Michael Myers is by ourselves and we'll take him on a loan and you wait here and we'll split up. And it was literally like, every rule that you don't do in a horror movie and it was frustrating because i felt like the 2018 one was way more self-aware well and it's yeah and even at a i i would even like again for me there was even a lot of performance things that i was like yeah what are they doing here (laughs) it feels kind of campy in a way that the 2018 one didn't it feels very like Whereas and if they were going to do that, that's fine. And I think that that can work. Um, and I actually what's interesting is the trope that they use kind of like the mental health stuff in kills is way more interesting than the one in 18. But then, you you know, you have all the other wrappings that it, it it's just it's interesting. So this next film does have that kind of, you know, ends has that dreamy quality and it's got kind of that tinkly, twinkly little um, carpenter kind of sounds to it. Uh, he definitely likes that motorbike. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I feel like where Kills is overstuffed, mm-hmm. this one this one is nice because it does it it does pull it back, right? Like it's not this kind of big macro everything that's going on in the whole town. And it does focus on this singular character really of Corey. To to me, this movie though, it, it's has some weird kind of pacing st- that Absolutely. bothered me. Especially near nearer to the end, mm-hmm. where this movie has a dramatic shift, right? Like this whole movie, and this is my main criticism of it. This whole movie is this buildup of Corey and his sort of descent, uh, uh, and him. He gets infected by this evil of Michael Myers, right? Which there may or may not have been some seed of it already there. I think all that is is cool and interesting. Um, My issue is that it just sort of pivots away from that and is like, okay, but we still have to be a Halloween movie and we still have to have this final showdown between Laurie and Michael. And and it just, it feels jarring. It feels like, well, that's not what this movie's about. This this movie isn't about I think it's actually, it's, and I know that the people who hate this movie, um, would tell you cut the Corey shit <laughs> um, and no, have I, more Michael Myers. I'm not saying that's what you're saying. I'm saying that's what the haters think. Um, right. But actually, the problem with the movie is it's not fully committed to the story it's trying to tell um, because yeah. it does it does have that pivot. I, and, and that's the, the point I'm trying to get at. I would have I, actually I taken it a step further and had Michael Myers die, like for sure die in in – Halloween kills and then and really play into this idea of this transference of evil that it's beyond a physical thing. I I really all I think I I think the movie is basically fine as it is. Uh, I I do agree with you though, right? Like that is that would have been um uh, that that would have worked I maybe a little bit better. Uh I I think really if you want to have this showdown between Laurie and Michael, and I think that's fine. I think there there is enough Michael presence here 
that what you needed was a showdown between Michael and Corey, Mm -hmm. right? Like you needed that pivot to make more sense. Like if Michael is this ultimate evil, then, then he needs to, I think there needed to be this moment that he sort of reclaimed that. Right. And, and there's specifically a moment that they build to between Laurie and Corey. That's really great, but sort of story-wise amounts to nothing. And well, I think that is the point where you could have had maybe a stronger uh, uh, climax with Michael that would have made a little more sense. I, the other movie that uh, this reminded me of in terms of uh, weird sequels that are kind of doing their own thing and going off the beaten path and annoying people um, is this reminded me a little bit of the ha- Halloween's version of a – Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, where a little bit, yeah, I see that. where instead of a dream nightmare, he's like this demon possessing the main character, and the fight is an internal one. And I think yeah, that he's that would have, yeah, he's aware of Freddy. Um, well, I mean, Corey's kind of aware, Michael. Exactly, and I think that would have been well. That's that's the true arc of that character. You're completely right. He there should have been a moment where, where it was between them two. Um, yeah, well, and I'm I'm of the opinion personally that Michael Myers never should have. This is, I guess, a spoiler. I don't know. Th- this was the most intriguing part of the film for me. Michael should have never come out of the cave. There was something about him being in his little sewer cave that I really liked. And when he was going in there and he was luring people there. I also think that maybe that the conclusion of this film should have ended in that sewer cave. Um, one thing about the, uh, as a long time watcher of many, like all of the Halloween films, all of them, I've seen every goddamn one of these things. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm close. I, I've been watching them all this year. Uh, well, H2O already did the showdown. It already did the showdown. And well, it was I a mean, better so showdown. Did, so did 2018, right? Like, True. we already got the fight. You know what I mean? Like, that setup is so good with her being the full-on fucking survivalist and her trap house and, like, the ending with her and her daughter and granddaughter, I thought was such a good showdown that I kind of agree with you. I didn't need... I, especially after Lori was, like, you know sidelined in the hospital for all of Halloween kills. I I was kind of fine with it. You know, I was like, I don't, I I wanted the Corey Michael showdown. I think that would have just been a better ending. Well, or like, and this should have also been Corey struggling with, like, it's also about a descent, right? Mm Because the first one is completely accident. You're, you know, he's a bit uh, of a demasculated kind of person. He's not like a very, you know, And then throughout the thing, he, he, you know, he puts on these different things and he has these different experiences that kind of build him into. It becomes you know, they're, more, they're, more intentional. He, he goes from manslaughter to full on evil. Right. right. And, and, and I mean, there's like in their self-defense and there's there's different things that is aggressive, but there are differences between a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it, I do think that the film itself could be more interesting but by the end, it kind of loses its own plot. And um, that well, very long kitchen scene, um, like I said, 
for me, H2O kind of did it. Well, and it, they did it, just, it much better. It feels unearned in this movie. That's the thing, right? Is it feels like they were trying to, they were like, okay, we're going to have this like. Well, but see now. We're going to swing for the fences with this Halloween movie that's not even about Michael Myers, which, uh, you know, I, I'm i not the first person to point out that this is the third movie in their trilogy and Halloween 3 is the one without Michael Myers in it at all, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think there's a meta-textual thing going on there. Like, people have even pointed out that they use the, the same font in the, like, opening credits, which I think is... Uh, you know, kind of a fun homage, but it felt like this thing where they're like, okay, we're going to swing for the fences and give them kind of this Halloween movie. That's never really been done before. Right. But then it, it kind it of loses just feels like a out at the end of like, yeah. well, we got to give them Michael Myers. Well, yeah. that's because, okay, this is my theory. They're setting it up for the space one. And because <laughs> space isn't enough anymore, they're going to do a multiple timelines. And, um, uh, Josh Hartnett has to come from an alternate timeline to save, you know, the we're, the we're gonna get a Halloween Endgame, uh, Halloween <laughs> Multiverse of Madness. Yeah. Yes, exactly. In space. Um, okay. You're you're probably it. you're joking, I've but it's probably it. gonna happen at some point because there's so many timelines now. Um, we can only hope. <laughs> well, and also if you if you were talking about the crappy Paul Rudd the the uh, five and six ones. Um, uh, well, six is the one with Paul Rudd in it. The five and six is where they get into the weird cult mysticism yeah, like kind the, of stuff. The cult of the thorn and stuff. Which... Yeah. Then you can bring that all in. So yeah, I'm, <laughs> I, what I'm really doing is, um, I need some money. Uh, <laughs> Hollywood, please, uh, look me up. Um, I'll be willing to write this piece of shit for you and I'll do it for really cheap. Daddy needs a new car. He'll work so, on scale. Um, yep. Ugh. He'll work on scale. Um, no, I, I agree with pretty much all of these points. I do think it's interesting, given the discourse I've seen online, you know, generally people are just like, I want Michael, who's this Corey asshole? And I think it's interesting that all three of us come to the conclusions like, no, that's the story. That's the interesting stuff. It's when it yeah. tries to, when it just kind of falls back on, well, it's about Lori and Michael. That's when the movie kind of falls apart and loses its nerve. But I think that that that's what's kind of happening is is my Michael not being in it enough is kind of a scapegoat. Um, I I think we all do this to a certain degree. Um, sometimes you don't have the right words or the right faculties yeah. to really put together what's wrong with something. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you find your Jar Jar Binks in something. Yeah, they're, yep. they're, <laughs> I was going to say they're Jar Jar Binks and Corey. Yeah, it's the Jar 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 being to uh, affect. Um, yeah, where you're you're putting all the things that you didn't like about a movie onto one thing that it, it may or may not even be the issue. exactly what you're what you feel critiquing things and stuff like that. Sometimes when you're having a really hard time, like you pin it on all these different things, you know. But yeah. is it the real reason? But there have been several times where I'm like, I'm not sure exactly. And that's what I think that that's kind of happening for people is they're like, it kind of gets to that end scene, which doesn't completely work and is a little gratuitous and kind of weird and stupid. And it really is just out of place. Yeah. Um. And I think that they're pinning it on these other ideas. 
Mm-hmm. Um, could we be having Halloween three effect? Sure. You know, this isn't Michael Myers. Maybe that's on purpose with the meta contextual kind of stuff. Um, I'm not sure, but I will say that that the film fails at just not committing. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you there. I, I think I, to me, that is the biggest problem with this movie is it in it, and, and kind of the same with Halloween Kills, right, is. Halloween Kills was so overstuffed with ideas that it was like it felt like it couldn't just pick one to kind of go with. This one feels like it had a solid idea. It just also wanted to deliver a people pleasing movie. And I don't I don't think it it just felt like kind of a chicken shit way out. It felt like we're going to give them something different, but don't worry, we'll put enough Michael Myers in there so that people will be happy and and obviously some people were still like what the fuck is this uh, right and i think it's kind of somewhere in between all of that i i, I ultimately come down great. to liking this movie more than disliking it because i appreciate that they really tried something different i appreciated that they they thought outside the box and especially for what is supposed to be the end of a trilogy, this is a weird place to do that. But I, I think this movie has like cult movie potential later on. Absolutely. When, yeah, in the See same way that movie, Freddy's Revenge and Halloween Three has. Um, honestly, seeing this movie made me appreciate Kills more. I actually was like, I, I kind of got thematically what they were going for with this trilogy like it's sure yes it is a linear story but it's it's more thematic is it about trauma i i think it's specifically (laughs) about like the nature of evil and and the transference of evil right like i'm joking because there's that super cut of uh jamie lee curtis going to every um press junket saying the movie's about trauma Oh, sure. sure. Um, um, I didn't get the reference. Seeing this movie, I felt like, oh, this does kind of feel like the conclusion of a trilogy. Uh, I, I think the second two movies are kind of problematic and weird. And and like I said, they're kind of messes. But mm-hmm. I think they're both interesting messes. I, I, I think they're both just trying to put something a little bit more than just like your typical slasher. And I, I appreciate, if nothing else, the effort. I don't disagree. If I'm judging it just as a film, like, it, it's just, I guess what's weird for me is when you see 2018 and how singular most of that movie was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it had one movie that was a nitpick complaint for me. I, I think Ends is better than Kills, for sure. Kills for me actually succeeds very much when it comes to the themes of the movie. It's just the performances. I, I, I like agree with the, you. The character decisions, uh, all of that. It also this needed is, a, a much tighter edit. Yeah, the, the, that one is it, it is. No, they just needed to restart. They just needed to go. OK, <laughs> this was a bad way to do this. Let's start <laughs> over and do it for real. That was a good practice run. Um well, I, I don't know. There's just something really weird about kills, but ends has so much good in it. And, you know, and I do think it has more of a cult. Um, well, and what we're possibility. talking about performances, I think, you know, Rohan Campbell is Corey. Like he is, I feel like making a lot of interesting choices. He is trying to, he has kind of a, a, a 
an un, uh, unenviable task in this movie of, you know, filling Michael's shoes. And, and that's part of thematically what it's about as well, which I right. don't know. I, I think he's great. I, again, I think there's a lot to like about this movie. There, it, I just think it got kind of tripped on its own shoelaces at the ending. I guess what my main issue, and it's not even that I hated any of these films. Um, I just mostly was a little frustrated because I'm like, literally, if you get it right here, you fuck up here. And if you get it right here, you fuck up it's there. Weird. This, so this I is, ju- it's just more like, what? It's kind of befuddling, like, it, it, especially when the first one was so strong. And it's right. It, and then to see them make these what feel like mistakes i don't know maybe maybe some of this was intentional uh but i mean uh, but mistakes can be like you can make a mistake intentionally yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, my I, opinion i have seen a lot of much dumber slasher movies and sure. I think the the potential of halloween 2018 just built this this thing up that w- i i think was maybe impossible for them to follow up on completely. Well, I think tw- uh, Halloween 2018 well, trying to introduce all these newer ideas. I don't know. Halloween 2018 is a much cleaner cleaner genre task to fulfill. It's just basically updating Halloween. It's just kind of doing a slasher film yeah. and doing it well. The other two are playing on a theme, playing on an idea, trying to take it to the next level. And I think both have interesting ways of going about that, um, but kind of get caught up on on different stuff. They're not clean, um, and they are a little shaggy. And and I think in the case of ends especially, we have an issue of a too many cooks in the kitchen. I feel like some of these decisions were probably studio heads' decisions, not the writers. I yeah, can't like you know be certain, but it definitely kind of feels that way. But what I like what about is- ends compared to kills. Mm-hmm. Um, and even to some degree, a, a 2018 is it's, it's character focused and yeah, that's always going to pull me in more than a, or even a well-directed slasher is to, to follow a point of view, to follow when I, uh, uh, somebody's thoughts. Um, well, I, so- I think that this one is, it's more, there is more directorial kind of like things that happen and ends that happen in kills like kills. I, I don't know if it was go- like, I did wonder if it was going for camp factor, but it just didn't feel right. Still. It was like, if this is going for camp, they needed to go further. So I, I, yeah, I will say after talking about this, I feel a little bit more like, even though I was kind of pissed off at the films, I feel a little bit better. It's like, I got something off my chest. <laughs> like, so I'm sure. like, okay, maybe I can kind of go back to these and like try them again just because there is there it's not just dumb empty studio projects like they do they are trying something and they are doing something so um i will give them that i i I still think that they're really well directed and david gordon green knows how to set up the set pieces and you know there's one good at least one or two great kills in in this movie. The one with the DJ, I think, is sort of the standout. But um, no, ends doctor was really good and and very much reminded me of uh, of the original Halloween too. <laughs> like I said, I I will always appreciate an interesting mess more than than just something that's bland and boring and safe. Right? Sure. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. 
you know, we, and, and I'm not saying 20, I mean, no one has said that about the 2018 Halloween. It's not bland. It's, it's got all of the right spice, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to elevate the, you know, this stuff and it just, in sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. I don't know. I, I think, yeah, talking about it made me appreciate kills more. I think, um, I enjoyed this movie while I was watching it, but I kind of was a little more prepared. I know Ashley, she had a harder time with it. She was kind of like, what the fuck did we just watch? <laughs> um, and I, I can't fault anyone for feeling that, especially if they're not as familiar with the Halloween franchise. Like if they've only seen Halloween and Halloween kills, right? I can see how, someone going into this movie would be like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> well, that's the kudos I give, you know, the, it, 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 you could just make a, another lifeless sequel. You can do it just the same way. You cannot try to, but they actually try to do something with the story in both of the, both of these messy, weird films. So I give full kudos there for sure. All right. Well, how are we feeling grade wise? I think I gave this, a B minus, but a somewhat enthusiastic one. I think this one I almost kind of, I don't know, maybe it's just because I've been watching all the Halloween movies recently, but I, I feel like I kind of got to grade this, grade this on a curve a little bit. I'm going to say as, as just a movie, movie, uh, yeah, probably somewhere around a B minus or a B. If I'm grading this on a Halloween curve, this is probably closer to a B plus because there's a lot of not good Halloween movies. True. Uh, 79.6. So I'll give it the B minus as well. Hurrah. All right. So barely make the cut. The yeah. 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 And there are, again, there are things, like I said, there are some directorial things and some music things and some uh, vibe and mood things in this film that I do think work. And that's why it, so it makes the cut. And, and as a great soundtrack and, and I, I mean, Oh yeah. I would, I feel like I will revisit this one more than I will revisit Halloween kills. Yeah. I forgot about the, uh, the banging soundtrack. Cause this is actually like old school nineties would have had the CDs kind of soundtrack. Yeah, the soundtrack is great. Plus the score, uh, John Carpenter and Cody Carpenter have never sounded better. Okay, Richard, before I talk about our socials and all that stuff, do you have anything you want to direct people to? Either, you know, some writing or something? No, not not currently. I'm, um, I am kind of, in this moment in my life, I'm kind of, you know, Michael Myers in the sewer cave. Uh, I've got a lot of pots boiling, but yeah, I'm good for right now. Thank you, though. If anybody has anything to say about any of the things we talked about in this episode or previous, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at mcguffinpod. Slip into the DMs and tell us what you think. Uh, leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review on whatever podcatcher app you use to listen to the show, specifically Spotify and iTunes. That would be lovely. Please do that. Uh, but we're on all the other things as well. 
Um, you can follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at VC Cassidy, and you can read my reviews that I do every other week for the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment or Idaho State Journal Movie Reviews. I should take you to that section of the website. And be sure to read the other reviews and articles by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at MacGuff.in. Keith. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid, and uh, you can also uh, follow the improv show I'm a part of at uh, Improv Versus Stand Up. Uh, I do shows here in San Diego um, on Saturday nights called Improv Versus Stand Up at Mockingbird Improv Theater. Um, so you can follow all that stuff as well. Okay, Richard, thank you for joining us. Uh, do you have anything uh, weird you want to say at the end here? Am I the psycho or the freak show? Are you the psycho or the freak show? <laughs>